Well, good morning and thank you for the prayers and thank you for all that you guys are doing as you pray for us as we're on the road traveling with the campers and everything else. It's uh, it's going to be an exciting week. It really is. The weather's supposed to be great for us and um, we're just looking forward to being together as a group once again, once again. And so we get together on Wednesday night just to do the medical release forms and you can just see the excitement in the parents and the kids' face as uh, we get ready for this exciting week of camp. So be praying for us this week. We'll get back on Friday night sometime and um, let's pray for the safety of our, our kids and our, our adults this week. So we're picking up uh, in First Thessalonians where we left off last Sunday. And if you remember what happened, Paul was encouraging the church in Thessalonica because Timothy had brought him a report. He brought him a report that was actually good. It was, they're doing all these things in faith. They're loving one another. They're, they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about what Jesus did for them. And it was really encouraging, but there's a, but there's two other things that Timothy told Paul that Timothy wanted Paul to address in this letter. And it may be the second reason for writing this letter is to deal with these concerns. And so today we get into the first one of those concerns and it has to do with the big S word, sex. Yeah, it's a good thing that the kids are on the road. Now I can just talk to you directly about sex today. Uh, and, uh, We'll see where that takes us. So we pick up in the letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, chapter 3 today, and verse 11, verse 11, it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct you direct our way to you. What he's done is he's literally come out of this time of encouragement for his people, for the church, and now he's praying for them. I promise you, I'll be driving today for like eight hours with kids in the car, and I will be praying for those kids, I'll be praying for the other bands, and I'll be praying for you. And this is literally what Paul's doing. He's praying for them. And he's said now for at least four times, four times Paul's told him, I want to come to you. I want to be with you. I want to see with you. But now we have to wait for the Lord to open up the way. Remember last week in chapter two, verse 18, it says Satan was blocking our way. And we said it's an old military term where there's part of the road was dug out. Well, now he's literally saying, Lord Jesus, pave the road back, make a way so that we can get back to the people in Thessalonica because we want to continue to disciple them. We want to continue to hug on them, see them face to face and just encourage them in their faith. May the Lord clear the way, the path, so we can get to you. Verse 12, it says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone. Not just the believers, but for everyone. May you overflow with love. Just as we do for you. Verse 13, it says, May he make your hearts blameless. Some translations, may he strengthen your heart. I like the strengthen better than making it blameless. 
May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. He closes that prayer. So he literally transitioned now from a time of encouragement and thanksgiving and everything else to a time of prayer. And now he's going to get into the exhortation part where he's trying to teach them about the two things Timothy brought to his attention. But think about this prayer for a second. That verbal phrase that he said, strengthen your hearts, it provides a link to what Paul has said earlier in this chapter that Paul talked about sending Timothy to them so that Timothy could help them in encouraging them and strengthening their hearts. So this is a way in which the second prayer that he talked about there in verse 12 and 13 is it anticipates the discussion that's about to come up that Paul's about to bring on them that talk, that Timothy has talked to him about. Paul is going to talk to him about these situations. A second theme in the prayer uh, is this concern for holiness. Paul really stresses the importance of holiness. And I don't even know if they know what holiness is. I don't even know if you know what holiness is. A third topic that he talked about in that prayer looks ahead is a reference to talking about when Jesus returns. And that was one of the questions that they had is they wanted to know when Jesus was going to come back. Think about this for a second. If this happened in 50 AD, it's only 20 years after Jesus was crucified on the cross. And from the time of Jesus was crucified, buried, and he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, they were literally looking for Jesus to come back that very next day a week after, a month after, a year after, now 20 years, they're anticipating the return of Jesus. We sit here today in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, and we go, Jesus, come back, Jesus, come back. But we really don't anticipate it. We don't just expect that it's going to happen because it's been so long. It's been 2,000 years. But think about what he says in that passage of Scripture when, when Paul says, May he make your hearts blameless. May he strengthen your heart in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Well, you and I know he's already made our hearts blameless through his blood, right? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now Paul is literally... He's referring to us learning how to live out of holiness. How do we live out of this new heart, this new creation that Jesus has made us to be? May we be strengthened in our understanding of holiness and choose to live out of that strength. So now he's finished this prayer and we're literally at the middle of the book of First Thessalonians, the letter that Paul's written. It's the transition that we've been waiting for. We finished our careful study of the first half of the body of the letter. And now Paul, with this help of this transitional prayer, he's nicely echoed what he wants to talk about in these two subjects. I ask you this question. Do you believe 
that we live in a sex-saturated world. Think about, uh, okay, the generation my age, 40s, 50s. Think about TV when we were kids. Remember uh, when soap came out, <laughs> uh, the the first gay person on television. If you want to go back further, uh, the husbands and wives didn't even used to sleep in the same beds. I mean, TV has totally changed now. And with the whole satellite TV and all the stations, it's almost fair game with anything. HBO, Cinemax, you name it. And then, of course, you've got the movies. The whole movie industry is... It's it's about sex and drugs and you know there's epic movies I do I do love the epic movies where it's about good and evil and then of course uh, let's not forget the internet the internet the most profits made on the internet is gambling and number two is sex the question I asked is do we live in a sex saturated world. Do you think it's ever been worse than it is right now in 2020? You think it's been worse? Your perspective may be about two or four generations old. But think about this letter that was written to the Gentiles back in 50 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. It was written to the Gentiles, the ones who worship so many different gods. Remember, they had beauty gods and sex gods and heaven gods and hell gods and nature gods and you name it. They probably have a god for worms and insects. If it was of interest to them, they came up with a god and they made up their own gods. They were man-made gods. So why wouldn't they have sexual gods? This is what the Gentiles who... That's the church in Thessalonica. That's where they came out of. They're Gentiles. They lived in a sex-saturated world. Let's understand the culture at that time. And living in a uh, Me Too society uh, where everybody's being called out and politic being politically correct about everything. And everybody has an opinion about things. You begin to mention what happened 2000 years ago. And I can already see the judgment coming from this society back into even the fact that I'm reading this, there comes judgment among people as you hear this, but we can literally see this, first of all, in the marriages that happened during that time. You see, a, a marriage back then was not a choice, but most often an arranged marriage between a man in his 20s and a girl in her early teens. Yeah, you're going, that's just crazy. But that was society. That was accepted. And given the arrangement of marriage and given the difference in age, it was actually expected that the husband would have a sexual partner who was different than his wife. Yeah, that happened. And evidence that it indeed happened and happened widely can be seen on the grave inscriptions that they're digging up even today. And then prostitution. Prostitution is something that you and I wouldn't want any to be associated 
associated with in any way. But in the ancient world, there were many leading, leading and important citizens, people of the upper class who made money off of men and women in prostitution. And there was no sense of shame or embarrassment about that at all. You know, Cicero, Indiana was named after a Roman statesman, Cicero. And Cicero gave this statement in response to the habits of men who were engaging in the services of affairs with prostitutes. He wrote this. If anyone thinks that young men should be forbidden to have affairs, even with prostitutes, he is very strict indeed. For his view is contrary not only to the law of the present age, but even with the habits of our ancestors and what they used to consider allowable. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? When, in fact, did that which was lawful become that which was not lawful? Cicero lived until about 50 BC before Jesus. And he's literally saying prostitution has always been a part of our world. Now you're thinking about making it illegal? Now? That's what he's saying. Uh, I haven't looked it up, but prostitution in the United States became uh, legal, illegal probably, I don't know, within the last hundred years. This is an issue that they dealt with 2,000 years ago. Cato, he's a Stoic philosopher who lived a little bit before his time of Paul. And he gave the advice to men. He said, in effect, men, in order to satisfy your sexual desire, don't do that with another man's wife. Make use of a prostitute instead. That was his practical advice about how men should handle their sexual desires. Do we live in a sexual saturated world? Yep. I believe we do, but I believe that they did 2000 years ago. If you want to go even further back than that, I believe that Sodom and Gomorrah was even worse. So it's not surprising here that this predominantly Gentile church who were still relatively new in their faith would need further instruction from Paul and Timothy and Silas about, well, what it means to turn from their idols, to turn from what was normal to them, to more faithfully live in which they do not serve those pagan gods, but they serve a living and holy God. They needed instruction. <laughs> in English, we have this term that's old habits die hard. So again, to newbie Christians, to believers who are young in faith, to Christians who are experiencing pushback and opposition. The apostle Paul is concerned that these followers might revert back to their former inappropriate behavior. Timothy's obviously told them about these concerns. To encourage and to equip, this is what Paul and Timothy wanted to do. They wanted to help them get through the sexual misconduct. So the second half of this letter is going to share with the Thessalonians how they can do just that. We look at 
First Thessalonians chapter four it says, additionally, then brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification. Paul says this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. We can equally translate it. It is God's will that you should be holy. The words sanctified and holy are two different English words for the Greek word. I have a hard time saying it, but it's called hagasmos, hagasmos. And this is a key word occurring four times in this paragraph, holding the paragraph together and revealing its primary theme. It's a passage about being holy and especially holy with regard to your sexual conduct. He says this, that you keep away from sexual immorality. The first of these three commands that Paul's about to give to the church at Thessalonica, this is the shortest and the most general, and it goes like this. He says in this verse, you should avoid sexual immorality. The verb that Paul uses here, avoid, is actually a rather strong one in the original Greek language. And it's the idea of not just avoiding something, but keeping away from something. We're going to camp up at Zion, and there's cliffs. And we tell the students, don't go near the cliffs. Don't even go around them. Stay away from them. This is exactly what Paul is saying about sexual immorality to the church. You know there's a strong sense here of don't come anywhere near this. The word pornea. It's typically understood as referring to any form of sexual misconduct. It's where we get our word pornography. In this first command, it's quite countercultural. Like it's in opposition of what they're used to. And Paul's literally having to say to them, don't do this. And really, honestly, the challenge is for us today. Don't do this. You know what is right. Verse 4, it says that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. He's literally saying, you've got the Gentiles who are just living corruptly in this world. And now you were former Gentiles and you've got this new heart. You're a new creation and you live differently. Two different types of people. Paul is literally talking about how each person should learn to control their own vessel, their own body. That is, they should control their own sexual desires. Mm. Is that really what it's saying? Well, just hang on. Just hang on. He says here in this second command of verses four and five that each of you should learn to control. Now, I'm not naive here. All right. 
I, I get it. I recognize how there are other things that are influenced by our genetic makeup that are not easy to control. For instance, some of us are prone to anger. We fly off the handle just like that. It's not easy to fix, but yet we're still called upon to correct our behavior. We're expected to correct it. Some of us struggle with food. <laughs> Somehow we're wired in a way that we react to food differently than other people do. Some people are great with diets. Some people just avoid diets. Yet we're still called upon. It may not be easy, but we're still called upon to, well, to, to learn to develop our control. And in a similar way, Paul says that when it comes to our sexual desires. Even though we've been created with these desires, we have to learn how to control them. And how do we control them? For the second time in this passage, he talks about the word holy. Like, that's the remedy for it? Okay, be holy. Be holy. That's, what we're, that's how we're supposed to control our, our minds and our bodies. He's saying, not in the passionate lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The same thing comes up with another important Old Testament text. If you look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 23 through 26, abbreviate it here. It says, God says this really to his covenant people, but he says this. Do not follow the practices of the nations whom I'm driving out before you. You go on and says, I'm the Lord your God who has separated you from all the nations. And you will be holy to me because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The one who separated you from all the nations to be mine. Again, I hope you heard the connection between the two references. To holy and the words separated. Separated because, again, we are getting this idea and this meaning that that's what holy means. It means to be separate. This holiness, the idea of being unique, of being set apart, of being distinctive, being separate. That's you. You're holy. You're separate. You're set apart from the Gentiles. You're set apart from the unbelievers. You're holy. You're redeemed. You're a new creation. He's made you that way. He's separated you from Verse six, he says this, he says, this means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. So this third command says that to be holy in our sexual conduct means that you act in a way which you don't bring harm to others. Paul says, the Lord's going to punish you for such sins. In that way, you just said, for those who are now in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. I truly believe that Paul's saying, hey, you either get this or you don't get this. You're either a new creation or you haven't been transformed. I really believe that he's saying there's a distinctive difference based upon your behavior, whether you're a true believer or not. And then he adds at the beginning, the little word because, and that's omitted in most translations, but it's important because it shows that this statement is meant to give a justification for the commands that come before it. 
Why should the Thessalonians and why should we be holy in our sexual conduct? (laughs) Well, the first reason has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and something that he's going to do in the future. It's because, Paul says, because he's going to come back and he's going to avenge. He's the avenger. So that first reason for being holy in one's sexual conduct has to do with the future return of Jesus. And then verse 7, it says this. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. He's saying, you guys, you you live in a sex-saturated society. God's will is that you be holy, that you literally be separated from that sex-saturated society, that you've been set apart. You've been given a new heart. You're able to think differently now, that you're distinct, that you, well, peculiar in what it comes to not only attitudes towards sex, but also practices towards sex. Set yourself apart. And and if you're keeping track, like I am right now, this is now the third of four occasions within the paragraph, verses three through eight, where Paul uses the key word and concept of holy. It's his big theme right here in this passage of scripture. To live a holy life. And Paul reminds us that God has called us. God has appointed to us to live just that way. Now just hang on a second. Verse 8, last verse we're going to look at today. It says, consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. You see, that's why I believe he's talking about believers and non-believers here. Anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but as rejecting God, you're either for God, you believe God, you trust God, you have faith in God, or you're following man, you're following yourself, your selfish desires. This is the distinction that Paul's making here with this church in Thessalonica. But what did he say? He says, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. God gives you his Holy Spirit. He he was crucified. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended. And he sent this spirit that lives inside of you. You have the holy living God inside of you. Now, Paul doesn't really write, God gives you his Holy Spirit. He writes, God gives you his spirit who is holy. So God's spirit is living inside of me, literally, and he's holy. Hmm. He's holy. I have a holy, living God inside of me. Is there a difference between the two? Yes, there is. That second reading puts an emphasis on the character of the Spirit that God gives. Paul's stressing that God is giving not any old spirit to his people. He's given us a Holy Spirit, one that's separated, one that causes us to be separated. So the reason we can live a holy life is because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Now, Paul is not teaching this, but this verse reveals 
his indebtedness to the Old Testament. Think about it. Paul is a thoroughly trained Jew who knows the Old Testament inside and out. And here he is reflecting again, not teaching, but he's reflecting in his statement, beliefs, and convictions that the Jewish people had about the future and about how one day God would pour out his spirit. So think about this for a second. If we can imagine an Old Testament perspective for a moment where Paul came from, we say, oh God, how we love your law. Out of all the people in the earth, we are the only ones with whom you've entered into a covenant relationship. We're the only ones to whom we have revealed your will. But although we're glad for the law, we are struggling with the attempt to obey it fully. So we are appreciative of the sacrifices which don't pay for our sins. They cover our sins. But give us an opportunity to express our true penitence for our failures and our true gratitude for your grace in our lives. We nevertheless are looking to the future, a future time that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel talked about, a time when God would, well, enter a new kind of relationship with his people, a new covenant. And part of that new covenant is that God will pour out his spirit. And we want that spirit. Why? Not just because we have the spirit for the spirit's sake is no. The spirit will empower us to do and to be what God has always called us to do and be. And that is already at Mount Sinai, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God's will never, ever changed. He has always called his covenant people to be holy as he is holy. The sad thing is, for those old covenant believers, they never had the power to do it. They were always dependent upon their own strength. And they failed. And they failed. And they failed. And thus Jesus had to come live out the law perfectly, climb up on the cross, be crucified, his blood poured out as a sacrifice for all the failures, past, present, and future, theirs and ours. And when he did that, we had the ability to have a holy, separate spirit come and live inside of us. That's exactly right. Now we have the power. We aren't capable of doing it in our own strength, but because there's a holy living God inside of us, we are absolutely capable. The key to living such lives of holiness is the presence and the ongoing presence of God's spirit in us. So here, as elsewhere in Paul's letters, the Holy Spirit is the power that enables believers to live holy lives. He keeps saying, be holy, be holy, be holy. Well, how do you be holy? You submit to the Spirit, the new heart, learning how to live out of the new heart. He's strengthening us each day as we know him more, as we talk about him more 
as we walk with him more. What Paul is promising these Thessalonians and what God's word is promising us here is this third cause is that we who are members of God's people, we've been given this promised gift of the Holy Spirit, which ultimately is a gift of power. Power. Remember that dunamis, it's that word that comes from dynamite. We have this power to overcome sin and to live a holy life that God has always called his people to live. We live in a sex-saturated world, and we think, oh, we'll just become like the rest of the world, and it'll be okay. And he's like, no, you've been set apart. You've been made holy, and I've even given you the power to make those decisions to remain holy. We just can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it by our own abilities. We've already proven that. The old covenant already proved that for hundreds and hundreds of years. But we can do it with the present empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the good news of the gospel that Paul shares with these Thessalonians. And that is also the good news for you and for me is you have the power of God living inside of you. I pray that you trust that power. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for today. Just digging a little bit further into this letter. And thank you for this church at Thessalonica that were faithful lovers of God and each other, but just need a little encouragement because they lived in a corrupt, fallen world. And they had to see things from a different perspective. Thank you for your word. It's not any different today, Lord. Keep reminding us each and every day that we're holy, that we're righteous, and that we're redeemed because of what you did in us. So, Father, I thank you. I love you. I pray for our kids this week that you would just continue to watch over them and guide them and give them strength. Keep us safe. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us here this morning at uh, Zoom, Levner. We've got literally one more Zoom. July the 5th, next Sunday, should be our last Zoom. Did you hear that? And then on July the 12th, we will be back at Pinheads all together. It will be a great thing. Pinheads is looking forward to having us there, and we're excited to be back there. I will send you more information uh, via emails and things like that. But July the 12th is going to be uh, a big, big day for us. I can't wait to get back together with you. And so uh, look forward to that day, and uh, we we will be praying for you this week. We'll be praying for you this week, and I thank you for... uh, hanging out with us this morning. I believe that I'm going to turn it over to Jim and let him uh, talk with a few of you here this morning. So thank you. I love you. And I will see you face to face in two weeks.